0: Well, good morning. My name is Trey. I am one of your pastors here as well. You got to see Pastor Mustache up here earlier, which he's phenomenal. So three things I wanted to uh, talk about before we would jump into the sermon. The first thing is this. Uh, I, I Last week when I made a joke about only a few people getting hurt at camp, I was one of those people. I thought I sprained my ankle, I actually broke it. So you didn't notice that I'm wearing a boot though because that brings me to the second thing. I'm wearing a bolo tie to distract you from seeing my boot. And uh, you might not know this, but the Arizonas many of you are probably transplants. I'm not. I'm native. My parents are natives. My grandparents grew up here, okay? I married a fourth generation Arizonan. <laughs> AZ, okay? <laughs> the bolo tie is the Arizona state tie. This has Western diamondback rattlesnake skin in it. So that's neat. Uh, but what's, what's even neater is if you're like me, this Father's Day, you're celebrating either you being a father, celebrating the fathers that you have in your life, but you're also mourning the loss of fathers that have been in your life. And uh, my grandfather was, uh, he was a father to me and, and cared for me in ways that I, I couldn't have even asked for, and this was his tie. So today, I have the privilege and honor of preaching on Father's Day with my grandfather's bow tie, or bolo tie. You know, I am a bow tie kind of guy. If you know me, you know I already, so it's weird to see me in a bolo. Okay, the third thing that I need to bring up is this. Uh, Frank isn't here, as you can see. Frank is at another family wedding. So many people just getting married, it's great. Uh, but since he's gone, he can't give this update, so I'm gonna give an update from him and from our elders, and uh, it was something we, we couldn't wait till he got back for. So um, let me just read it to you. Um, so this is from him. A few Sundays ago on June 4th, Frank made an appeal about our financial situation. This was the first time in seven years that our elders of Redemption Arcadia felt compelled to have Frank do this because of a shortfall in giving. Frank reviewed that our congregation's general operation operating budget, the giving through April of this year, was down by 24%. So... Um, against both the budget and last year's giving so he also reported that although the staff has done an excellent job at uh quickly and and, um efficiently finding ways to cut expenses the shortfall was too was simply too large to make up with just cuts so frank made the appeal um for you all to prayerfully look at your giving to see if you could help push back on this deficit and frank the pastors and the elders believe that after making such an appeal It is only right to report how things are going since the appeal and Frank did not want to wait until he returned to get this report to you. So as it was seven years ago when that first appeal was made, we have been overwhelmed and humbled by your gracious response. The last time we did this, you guys did the same thing and this time you did it even more. I'm proud and I am grateful for you. I'm honored when I look at my congregation that I get to be a part of and we see this faithfulness So um, so far in June, we've had our three biggest giving weeks of 2023 because of this appeal. And although the shortfall, yes, Um, and although the shortfall has not completely evaporated, the deficit is now a mere pond as compared to the lake it once was. Frank did a great job of didn't just evaporate the pond and the lake. It's great. So again, we cannot emphasize how grateful we are and how overwhelmed and humbled that we are um, by your enthusiastic response. Thank you. Um, let me pray before we jump in. Oh, Heavenly Father, you have gifted us the Bible, and I thank you so much for it. Um, it is excellent material indeed. Let me not treat this excellent material in a defective way. Lord, help me not be anything, any hindrance um, from you speaking to your people. I pray that you would, your word would come uh, loud and clear um, and that only what is from you would be uh, spoken about today. Lord, we love you and we pray you would grow our delight in you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll be in 1 John. You got to hear the reading from Andrea, impeccable reading, better than me. Um, but before we jump into 1 John, you can flip there with your in your Bible. Um, but before we jump into the, to the verses, a couple things I want to review that Frank kind of brought up before. Um, but a couple of things I really just want to pinpoint. First is, John is the author of 1 John. I know it's, we're really, really original in the names of these books. So John writes, we don't know who he writes to. This is sort of unorthodox for an epistle in the Bible. Normally it says, I blank, am writing to you blank for this reason, or something like that. This doesn't have that. So, but we don't really know who he's writing to, but we do know he is a pastor. He was an apostle, so he's a pastor. He says, with care, hard things. And this morning is going to be a lot of that. With care, there's going to be a lot of hard things that we talk about. Um, and what's also is neat about John is he always says why he writes something. He wrote the Gospel of John, And if you recall in the Gospel of John, he says in John 20, verse 31, I'm writing this so that you would believe and have eternal life. So he tells you, this is why I wrote this, so that you would believe and have eternal life. And then when 1 John, he does the same thing. We talked about it last week with Frank and the week before. In chapter 5, verse 13, he writes that he's writing uh, to those who do believe that they would know that they have eternal life. So he wrote the Gospel of John that they would believe, and have eternal life, and he's writing First John to those who do believe that they would know that they have eternal life. I love that he tells us why we don't have to ask. Uh, also, he writes in this circular rhetoric. I'm sure many of you are very familiar with Hebrew poetry and literature and read it all the time, but uh, Hebrew literature often doesn't just go in a in a discourse and a follow a, like a line, somewhat like maybe the Greek kind of discourse would in liter- literature, like Paul's letters, and Romans, and, and maybe 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Instead, it's more like Psalm 119, where the same ideas communicated in multiple different ways, and what's really neat about that is not only is it beautiful and artistic and all that, but it redefines terms. So it's kind of like they're saying, and what I mean by that is, and this is what that means. And so we get to look at, well, why is he saying this the same way, but a little bit differently? And that gives us a lot of clues as to what he's really trying to say and communicate, which is super helpful for us. So he helps us in that. It's kind of like you're speaking to to little children. And when you say it to a little, I don't know if you have kids, it is Father's Day, but if you have kids or you've had little kids or you've been around them, you know, you want to say something in every which way you can say it because you know the first time is not going to stick. And so he's kind of doing that same thing too. And he even says this, even if you look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1, my little children. So these are his little children. You can hear the fondness that he has for them. So we don't know exactly who it is, but we can also want to ask the question, what is it, why is it that he's writing to them and this specific thing to them? I, this is one of those moments where I wish we could have the letter that they had given to John. Not the letter that John wrote, but the one that he's reading or that they spoke to him, that we had some kind of dialogue. so we could. What is it that they're asking him, and why is he writing those specific things? So we don't know exactly who it is, but I think we can we can infer from 1 John and from our text today um, that what he, uh, we'll, we'll get into that. Let's start with two points of context. Okay. Uh, the first, if you uh, go to chapter 2, verse 20, so flip to the right one page if your Bible is like mine, um, which maybe it is, I don't know. It says, they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been us, of us they would have continued with us but they went out that they might become plain that it might become plain that they all are not of us so we're wondering what is it that they're asking their pastor john well right now what's happening in their church if we look at the context here uh, professing christians are leaving the faith and leaving the body professing christians are leaving so this is like a tumultuous time, and they're like, uh, we don't know what's going on here. People who I thought were with us are leaving. And then the second point of context, if you look at verse 26, it says, um, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So they're not just leaving, they're also trying to deceive them into thinking what they think. So the two things that are happening before we get into this text that we really want to understand, if we could read that letter, it would probably say something like, Professing Christians who are saying the things that I say and doing the things that I do are leaving And they're saying this wrong They're teaching us something new and contrary to what you taught us. What are we what are we going to do with that? Well, we can infer that the what they're really trying to so like what are they teaching? What is this specific thing is it something weird? Well, I think if we look at first John and when we read through it, it'll it make sense today I think what they're teaching is that they can be in the faith without doing righteousness. They're writing their own rules. They can be in the faith without doing righteousness. Um, If you look at verse 29, I know I'm flipping back and forth, but what's really cool about the Bible is if you don't understand the context, the Bible will give it to you. You just look at the Bible. It's great. Uh, Verse 29 says, If you know that he, Jesus, is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So they're saying, you can be in the faith and not, not do righteousness. But John is saying, you can't separate righteousness from Christ. And you can't separate righteousness from those who are in Christ. So they're making up their own rules. I bet you, in their day, what they're saying is, it doesn't matter if I have a few too many drinks. I don't drive after. Got my own rule. Uh, they're probably saying it doesn't matter that much. It's not that big of a deal when I come home and sit on the couch and watch TV. I want to check out, I've had a hard day. It's, it's not that big of a deal if I don't take the time to give of myself to teach my kids the love of God and show it to them and give them the attention of the Father. They might be saying, I don't know, sexual abstinence is archaic. That's an old idea. I mean, and who does that anymore? Or, Marriage between one man and one woman is it's too exclusive. That's too exclusive. Making up their own rules. I know what the Bible says, but I know the Bible says that they were made male and female, but who is God to tell someone what they can, can or can't do to live their lifestyle? They're making up their own rules. Did, do any of you happen to know someone who's left the faith? Did it shake you? Perhaps it was somebody you're close to, maybe still close to, who you love. Um, But they deconstructed their faith and reframed their beliefs to fit in the things that they want to fit in and try to bring others with them. That's what's happening. Of course, we would never do this. This wouldn't happen here. I can almost hear them saying, Pastor John, what are we supposed to do with this? how on earth am I supposed to make sense of this? How do I look different than them? Am I going to lose my faith? This is the questions they're asking. I don't know if you've had that question, but if you haven't and you're walking with Christ, you're going to have moments where the enemy is going to try to tell you lies, and you need assurance of your life in Christ. You need it. It's not a, well, it would be nice to have it. You need it, and God is giving it to you. If you remember... uh, Chapter 5, verse 13, which is what we talked about three weeks ago and last week, and then I said it earlier, it says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you would know that you have eternal life. What we're talking about here is assurance. And there's two hefty sections we're going to go through today. And the first is uh, verses 3 through 6, and the second is 7 through 11. And both of them kind of start with a statement That's sort of abstract it's clear but it's abstract but then it works its way down this ladder of abstraction onto a concrete practical clear picture so let's kick it off with verse three Um, it says and by this we know that we have come to know him being Jesus if we keep his commandments whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If you look back at verse 3, it says, By this we know that we have come to know him. There's two different no's going on. By this we know, factually, that we've come to know him. I think it's super important that we kind of unpack that. John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life. This is Jesus praying in John 17 and, and letting the disciples hear him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing. What kind of knowing? Last week, Frank talked about a parasocial relationship. I don't know if you remember this. But a parasocial relationship is a relationship you might have with somebody that you watch on TV or that you go to their concert, somebody who's famous that you might know them and have had interactions with them kind of through that medium, but if you saw them on the street, they would have no clue who you are. But you feel like you have that relationship with them, but it's not real. That's that parasocial relationship. So maybe what we're talking about here is the opposite of that. Maybe the opposite of that is like a personal relationship. Personal. And I don't think that's it either. Judas knew Jesus personally but he didn't do the commandments of Christ. So we're talking about a different kind of know here. By this we know that we have come to know him. What is the knowing that we're talking about? I think the qualifier is in the next verse. Look at verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. This is identity talk. This isn't like, hey, this is a person doing this. No, this is, he's identifying this person. He did not say they simply lie. He said they are a liar. He did not say that oh, they just missed the truth. No, the truth is not in him. It's interesting language. The truth being in him. This type of knowing requires the truth being in him and obedience. And obedience, if you, if you remember, maybe, um, maybe, maybe not, Scripture talks about how even demons believe, but they shudder at the name of Christ. They don't follow and uh, follow the commandments. So then to say you have faith in Christ or that you believe in God but not obey is to have a demonic faith. But I don't think that's, I think what he's really trying to get at here, if you flip, this is really neat. Again, First John just gives all the information. Go to chapter 5, verse 20, it says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. He is the truth. When he comes back in Revelation, it tells us his name will be Faithful, capital F, and True, capital T. So the truth is not in him. It's a deeper meaning of this kind of knowing here. This is identity talk. It's not just that I know it personally. There's a knowing that requires a deeper knowing that is a type of love in you and understanding that you can't put there. You can't put that type of knowing in you, this type of truth in you. Uh, Matthew eleven twenty seven 27 says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. How do you know Jesus? He chooses to reveal him. It's a gift to you. A lot of people think that they know Jesus, but how do you know that you know Jesus? How do you know that you know? Because there's a lot of people who say they know, but they're in darkness. Truth is a real thing. Of course, Jesus is the truth, but also truth, the concept truth is a real thing. It's not some fabricated like subjective thing. It's true. So because truth is a real thing, there's a reality that around 2,000 years ago, of course not today because we're way too civilized, but 2,000 years ago, people would profess things and believe them, but they were wrong. We're too civilized to do that. Nobody would really profess that the earth is flat, even though like right now there's tons of people who argue that. We wouldn't profess that eggs are healthy or unhealthy because you give it five years and then somebody says, it's not healthy, or give it another five years. It is healthy, who knows? Just because you say something or someone says something doesn't make it true. Truth is a real thing. So if truth is a real thing, we're discovering what is, not trying to say what it is. Does this make sense? It's, truth is a real thing, and we have to understand that. If you flip over to 1 John 4, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Truth is a real thing. You have to test if it's true. Confirm, and confirm everything. Don't b- blindly f- listen to somebody who tells you something. Truth is real, and if truth is real, fight for it. Test the spirits. Care about finding what is true even more than being right. Care about finding what is true more than being right fight for assurance assurance is knowing that you know if you look back at verse 3 it says and by this we know that we have come to know knowing that you know that's assurance that's what we're talking about here not just thinking that you know but knowing that you know those are different things so why does assurance matter why does knowing that you know why does that matter well first because it glorifies God you don't have to flip there it'll be on the screen I'll breeze through this um, but Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 say, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so no one may boast. Assurance matters because it's God's power being glorified, not our power. And what's neat is if God gave it, you can't lose it because you didn't earn it in the first place. That's Assurance. Uh, The second reason, so it glorifies God. The second reason is it gives you confidence in the resurrection. Verse 28 of chapter 2 says, And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Jesus will come back. And what gives us confidence instead of shame in that day? Assurance. A third reason is that it gives you confidence in prayer. Have you noticed that we talk to different people differently? You might talk to your boss differently than you'll talk to a friend. You might, if you're in the army, talk to your commanding officer differently than you would talk to your enlisted buddies. We talk to different people differently, and I think it's important we understand that because right now, when we pray, we could be unintentionally thinking that we're speaking to God the right way, and we're not. I know I might be, like, our prayer life is what gives us life. It is important that we have a serious prayer life. And the way we're supposed to bring our information to the Father is like this, 1 John 5, 14 through 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we ask of him. Assurance is vital. Vital means, I don't. if I'm a paramedic, Still got the certs, even though I don't do anything with it. But um, vitals, or your vital organs, if you take one of them away, you die. So vital is not like important. Vital is without it, it dies. Assurance is vital for us to pray as God intends for us to pray, with confidence in expectation to our Father. This should be hopeful. You don't come up to him wearing the shame that Christ has already paid for. We get to go in confidence, asking our Father with expectation. That is a, that's good news. And it's, so assurance matters because it, gives us it, because it glorifies God, it gives us confidence in the resurrection, and it gives us confidence in prayer. And assurance, like I said, is knowing that you know. Does anybody know any teenagers in here? Maybe some of you were teenagers at one point. I know Wheeler probably was never a teenager. But teenagers, when I was a teenager, when I was 18, I knew things, or I thought I knew things, and then life humbled me. You learn how easy it is to think that you know, but be wrong, time and time again. What's interesting is if you think that you know things, it makes you cocky. If you know that you know things, it makes you confident. You might say, well, what's the difference? How do you, how do you draw that conclusion? Well, here's the thing. If you... Know you know things. Well, if you think you know things, you just operate out of what you think that you know. If you know that you know things, you know how easy it is to think something and be wrong. So you do the work to confirm it. And then you know that you know. You have to humble yourself to that point of saying, I could be wrong here, let me confirm this. So when you know you know, you have confidence. Confirm it, confirm everything. And it's not just teenagers that do this. We all, we all confidently act at the things that we think that we confidently know. And the problem is we don't know what we don't know. So instead of us thinking that we know, let's confirm that we know and confirm everything. Frank said a couple weeks ago, when you come to church, you should bring your own Bible because you need to confirm what's coming out of my mouth. Don't just blindly take something from somebody who's saying something. I'm not the authority here. God's word is the authority. We need to know our Bibles. Bring it, be familiar with it. And when we flip through the pages ourselves and we're seeing it with our own eyes and I'm finding it, it's practicing that thing we should be doing in our week, not just here. So, okay, there's my plug. I tell my students, bring your dates to church. Don't go on a date without your date because that's awkward. Don't go to church without your Bible. That's what I tell them. But anyway, so confirm everything, and if we don't know the Bible, we won't know the commandments that we're supposed to follow, right? This says in this, by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, how do you know you're keeping the commandments if you don't know them? We've got to know our Bibles. So how do we find this assurance? So we've talked a lot about why is it important? We got that. How do we get it? How do we find it? How do we know that we know Jesus? And that we have eternal life. Well, here there's a pattern here. You know, you'll notice that when he says something, it's profession. Then there's an action. And then there's conclusion. Profession, action, conclusion. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, says, I know him, profession, but does not keep his commandments, action, is a liar, conclusion, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, action, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Conclusion. Interesting. He didn't say, and in him who keeps the commands, well, yeah, the truth is in him. That's not what he said. He said it a different way because he's defining his terms. He says, the love of God is perfected. So the love of God is in him. There's a lot of meaning in this to know him. It's more than just a personal or a parasocial knowing. It's not just knowing facts, and it's not just having a relationship. It's a, It's a deep faith that Christ has put in you. So, I think we all know though what it's like when people profess things, but don't do them. Right? Like somebody says something to you, but then in their actions means something they they don't think that at all. I know that we've all we probably we've all done that too. Well, here's the paradigm I want us to understand about faith. True faith works. It's not faith versus works, like in James when James writes, you know, you say you have faith and I have works and. And he says, I'll show you my faith by my works. This is another inseparable pair. You can't separate Christ and righteousness, and you can't separate faith and works. If faith don't have works, James tells us, dead. The faith is dead. So it's important for us to know this. True faith works. And I know a lot of people will say things and even believe things, but in their action, it's not true. It's kind of like, made me think of this Proverb 26, 18, and 19, like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death is one who deceives their neighbor and says, I was only kidding. Have you ever heard somebody do that? Oh, Have you ever heard of a joke? They say, I'm not trying to be harsh or mean, but in their heart, you can see by their actions how they feel or think about something. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, uh, this is kind of like, saying you're a son's fan, but only wearing the jersey when you're winning. We've not been wearing our jerseys a lot lately. (laughs) My prayer for us today, for you today, is that you would know that you know Jesus and have that assurance, or know that you don't know Jesus, so that it might call you to him. So let's jump in. If we know that our diagnostic tool is evaluating actions, let's look at these actions that he's talking about and keeping the commandments. Verse 7, it says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Now the truth is in him and in you. Saying the same kind of thing in different ways, I love it. Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother, is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. There's that circular rhetoric I was talking about, and he mentions these commandments in depth. He says the commandment is the word that you heard. There's this weird correlation between it's new, but it's also old, what? And then he talks about love. So what's with this new and old stuff? Well, I have a thought, and my thought is this. These people who are trying to deceive that are leaving the faith and leaving the church are bringing in new things to them and saying, no, this is the right thing. And I think John's trying to say, listen, it's, this is the same. When we preached the gospel to you, this was in the gospel, loving God and loving people. Like, this isn't a new thing. But, he, but then I also hear when he says this new thing, it makes me think of uh, John. Is that the next page of my notes? Yeah, John 13, when Jesus says, and I give you a new commandment that you would love as I have loved you instead of love your neighbor as yourself. So I think he's referencing back to Jesus' point, saying a new commandment I give you. We're loving like Christ. We're not loving as I would love. We're loving as Christ would love. And then he's also saying, but it's the same thing we've been telling you. It's not new. It's the, the word you've had from the beginning since we gave you the gospel. You can't separate this from the gospel. True faith works. So keeping the commandments of Jesus is to love. Uh, But before we get into that love, I want to talk about this dark and light business, this dark and light stuff. Um, If you look at verse 11, it says, But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. And walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. If you remember, I think it was last year we went through John for a really long time. And there was this theme of light and darkness. We talked a lot about that. This type of darkness, he just said, is not passive. Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is not a passive darkness. And I think this should be a large warning for us. You can be actively deceived. To where you lose all conviction of wrongfulness, and it's because God has given you over to your delusions. Look at 2nd, well, it'll be up on the screen. 2nd Thessalonians 2 9 through 11 says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may all be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in righteousness. This is a warning to those and to us. If you take pleasure in, righteousness, in unrighteousness, don't be deceived. If you're making up your own rules like these guys who are leaving the church did, don't be deceived. Just because it, feels, it doesn't feel wrong doesn't make it right. Just because it doesn't feel wrong doesn't make it right. We know what, tr- what is true by knowing the Bible. Anything against this, even if you think that it seems right to you, is a lie. Do what is right because you know it's right until it feels right. This is what Tom Schrader would say. You do what is right because you know it's right until it feels right. So let's talk about love. This seems like a pretty central part of what he's talking about. This is what it means to walk like Christ is to love. If we know that we know Jesus by our love, what kind of love are we talking about? So like I said, in John 13, Jesus says, um, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love people. But he says, love as I have loved you. He makes a point to call that new. I think that there's three, four, four big things that come from loving like Christ. I think there's more, but I chose four because I only have so many minutes. Um, The love of Jesus is joyfully sacrificing, boundlessly forgiving, and delighting in the truth kind of love. The love of Christ, number one, is not a good vibes only kind of love. We know this because Jesus confronts wrongfulness. Number two, the love of Christ delights in the truth. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. So we know that. Uh, If you recall Ezekiel, I'm sure many of you just read Ezekiel this morning or something. So in Ezekiel, God is speaking to uh, Ezekiel saying, A watchman has a job for the city. He stands on the wall. He watches for an army to come. When an army comes, he sounds the alarm so that everyone can know and then be saved. If he sees the army but does not sound the alarm everyone's blood is on his hands, is on his head. But if he does sound the alarm and nobody moves, they stay in their bed, I'm tired today, and then they die, their blood is on their own head. And then God says to Ezekiel, you are the watchman of Israel. My wrath is coming. Tell the sinners to stop sinning. And I'm telling you, this is God's message to us. If we're to love like Christ, we have to be the watchman to our people. We have to bring the gospel everywhere we go. The love of Christ, third, boundlessly forgives. This one is hard. People think forgiveness is just not doing anything after being wronged, and that's not the case. It is active and very difficult. Many of us in here have probably been seriously wronged by someone, and to ask you to forgive them is unimaginable. It's an unimaginable thought. But God is inviting you into something better, even though it is through something hard. Also, Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. And I don't think he's trying to say something harsh like do this or else. I think what he's trying to say is if you can't forgive someone, then you really don't know what I've forgiven for you. So he's trying to bring, I think, more of a a diagnostic tool here. If you understand the love of Christ, you understand how you've been forgiven, you cannot help but also to do the same. The love of Christ boundlessly forgives. On November 5th, 2003, maybe many of you, some of you would remember this, Gary Leon Ridgway confessed to murdering 48 women. He sat in a room while families of the victims addressed him one after another. They spoke their words of brokenness and what he had taken from them and expressed their hate for him while he looked with an emotionless stare. Unaffected by the speakers, one man, a father of one of the victims, stood up and addressed him and said Mr Ridgway there are people here that hate you but i'm not one of them you've made it difficult for me to live up to what i believe and it is what god says to do and that's to forgive you are forgiven sir and this stone cold serial faith serial killer face melts down in tears weeping the love of christ boundlessly forgives Fourth, the love of Christ joyfully sacrifices. And I'm not talking about sacrifice and suffering that's like masochism or asceticism. Masochism is like the pleasure in the pain, and asceticism is trying to justify or atone for things you've done wrong by by punishing yourself. If Christ's taken the, the burden for us off the cross, you don't have to do that. That's not what I'm talking about. You don't punish yourself, even though a lot of us try to do that and take some of that weight off of Christ's shoulders. Christians joyfully sacrifice for the sake of others, and this will cost you. Christian love is costly. Christ-like love is costly. Like Christ and all who follow him, we will have to endure suffering and discomfort, but we'll do it joyfully for the sake of loving people. For the sake of loving people, Paul... With loving people with the gospel, preaching the gospel, he was beaten the same way Jesus was beaten with the cat-of-nine-tails tail, five times. He was beaten three times with a rod. He was shipwrecked multiple times. He was stuck at sea for a day and a half. This dude went through some hard seasons. And he's like, I've got joy. And many of us might say, if that was our story, I don't know if we would be, I think be like really down in the dumps. Oh, man, I just had such a hard life. But he accepts it, and he says, for the sake of loving people with the gospel, I endure suffering joyfully. Another man did this as well. His name's Polycarp. He was a direct disciple of John, who wrote 1 John. And Polycarp, super interesting dude. He joyfully went up to the stake and amidst the flames praised God for having deemed him worthy to be numbered among his martyrs, to drink the cup of Christ's sufferings unto the eternal resurrection of the soul and the body on the incorruption of the Holy Spirit if you knew that if you know this about history uh, in that first couple hundred years the Romans actually persecuted the Christians pretty harshly and they were for thinking that they were atheists because God was invisible so they called them atheists it was for uh, they thought that they had incest because they would call each other brother and sisters they would they thought that they were um, uh, cannibals because they would have the blood and body of Christ like just all I don't know if you've ever been mis mistaken as a Christian. Um, but it goes on, and as he is about to be martyred, the Romans said, Have respect for your old age. Polycarp's old at the time. Swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say, down with the atheists, down with Christianity. Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitude in the stadium, gesturing towards them, and he said, Eighty and six years, so he's eighty six years old, have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my Saviour? They said, I have wild animals here. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. He said, call them. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good, to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. And then they said, if you despise the animals, I will have you burned. You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment. Reserve for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. This guy's got some fire in his heart already. And then he says, uh, as they went to go fix him with nails to the stake, he says, leave me as I am, for he that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me not to struggle without the help of your nails. This guy joyfully goes to the stake, knowing he's going to suffer, and he doesn't even let him tie him up. He says, I'll stand in it, joyfully. Other accounts talk of him singing psalms at the time. If you're really in Christ you will suffer but it will be the most joyous road you could ever take it'll be hard but it'll be the most joy you've ever had denying yourself and taking up your cross is not at the expense of your joy John Piper defines love as finding your joy in the joy of others Hebrews 12 1 through 2 this has special significance for me this is how I got a wife it's a longer story but um, it says this therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every way and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He didn't go to the cross joyless. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The love of Jesus is a joyfully sacrificing boundlessly forgiving and delighting in the truth kind of love if you claim to be in him this is how we have to live this is our road and, it, and we won't do it perfectly let me close with this point uh, we know that jesus is perfect and without sin so he never needed to repent or confess so when it says we walk as jesus did you have to think well, we're still in that already, but not yet. We're already justified in God's eyes, but right now we're in the not yet. We still have to war, wage war with the members of our own body, the flesh that wants to sin. And as you fail and you will, be quick to repent, confess. If you look back up to uh, chapter one, verse nine, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we know that James five says, confess your sins to one another so that they may pray for you and you might be healed. So how do you get to healing from sin? Confession and prayer. Maybe you're stuck in a pattern of sin, and you're asking, am I really saved? Maybe you've like grievously sinned and hurt someone, and you're asking, am I really saved? If you want to know for sure with assurance, confess and repent. And like Frank said, so I'm going to say the quote, and then it's Martin Luther and then Frank Switzer. But um, the quote was, Martin Luther, the life of a Christian is repentance. We don't do it once. We'll have to do it many times. So with that, I, I implore you, please don't cheat yourself from a, a prescription. All the commands of God are a prescription to make you well. They're not something to limit you. Don't take this this Opportunity. You don't have to do it now, but maybe in your small groups, maybe with a trusted friend, take hold of something that's that's life-giving, which is to confess your sin to death. We're going to move into a time of response, and this is a great time. We're up, we'll be up here, and we'll be willing to pray with you. Um, great time to confess now, or you can let the Lord work in your heart to confess, like I said, in a small group or trusted friend or somebody that you came with today. But um, we'll have... Uh, some people up here in the wings that can pray for you. We're going to also receive communion. And receiving communion professes that we're one with Christ and one with each other. So as we come up, take a moment, and, and as you're coming up or as you're taking the body that is for you and the, and the blood that is for you, let us remember, when Jesus broke it, he said, this is my body broken for you, and this is my blood shed for you. Now, we know that it's not actually his body, and not actually his it's still bread and wine, but it recalls us to remember that, and then with it, and as we take it, we're confessing, we're one with Christ and one with each other. And, I, and um, I'll pray us out, and we'll do that. Um, let that be something that forms us as we go into this week. Heavenly Father, um, you have gifted us with such a wonderful gift in this book that you didn't have to give. I thank you that you're a God that reveals yourself. And Lord, I pray that you would inflame our hearts and illumine our minds so that we might understand, deeply know that we know we know you. I pray you would give us that assurance and that with it we could pray confidently, that we could have confidence and not shame in the day of your return. And that we might also love the way that you loved us. Help us do that, Lord. Help us enjoy the rest of our time together and at this wonderful Father's Day as we look to you, the only perfect Father. In Jesus' name, amen.